0: The Relentless Forward Podcast is sponsored by GI Associates. GI is one of the largest gastroenterology practices in the Southeast United States. Together with GI Associates, we are supporting the 70 by 2020 initiative, uh, whose aim is to ensure that by 2020, 70% of those Mississippians who are eligible for colon cancer screenings actually get screened. So if you are in the Southeast United States, specifically Mississippi, and you are eligible to get screened but haven't done so, here's what you need to do next. Email stinkyfeet at gi.md. Use the subject word stinky feet and schedule your screening today. As a colon cancer survivor, um, I have had multiple colonoscopies and upper endoscopies at GI Associates, so I know firsthand how much they care about their patients. Screening can and will save lives, so don't wait. Again, email stinkyfeet at gi.md, put stinkyfeet in the subject line, and get your screening scheduled today. So, my guest today is one of the world's leaders in the battle against cancer. He was one of the first employees of the Livestrong Foundation, oversaw its growth to one of the most respected uh, organizations in the world today. Currently, he is the president and CEO of Pelotonia, which is an organization that has raised either nearly or more than $150 million for cancer research. He is also a family man. He has a lovely wife, two amazing children, and when he has time, he's an adventurer that has stood on the roof of Africa. He's inspired millions of people nationwide. I'm honored to call him a friend and have him on the program today. His name is Doug Allman. Doug, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. It's sunny, cold, but sunny. You know, I got no complaints. It's uh, it's a great day.
0: Well, you're up in so for those listening, you are in Columbus, Ohio, um, and we're most of my listeners probably are in Mississippi, and uh, it's pretty nice down here. We probably we'll only get up to about 70 today, but it won't be uh, it won't be too bad.
1: We we will get above. Half of that today. We'll be in the low 40s. We'll be in the low 40s. Well, uh, tomorrow might be 50, so that's uh, good and yeah. sunny. And I will say that I did yesterday wear my prized hat that I got when I was visiting you in Jackson several years ago that I wear all the time.
0: I, didn't know uh, one so it I, I had
1: a little bit of Jackson on yesterday.
0: Was that, let me guess, what, was it the Buffalo Peak hat?
1: Absolutely. Navy blue
0: trucker hat. I love it. Yep, our friends at Buffalo Peak, that's my friend Dave Edmondson. Um, they're pretty awesome. We've seen you wearing that hat before, so thank you for bringing some uh, Mississippi up to the, to the Midwest. You guys need some some of that culture. So, Doug, let's talk a little bit about, um, let's start with your history. So, um, I, I just want people to kind of understand you know, where you came from and, and who you are, and then we'll get into more of what you do today. But um, tell me about where you grew up and um, how you really initially got involved in um, cancer philanthropy.
1: Yes, I grew up uh, in between Baltimore and Washington. And, uh, you know, cancer was the furthest thing from my mind when I was a kid and never really knew much about it, didn't think about it, didn't actually have very many family members that I knew of that were dealing with it. And so um, it was quite a shock when I was... Uh, in college, I was 19, I was playing soccer in college and uh, ended up in the emergency room for um, what at the time seemed like a some sort of asthmatic reaction to something in the air, and uh, that led me on the path that uh, ended with a cancer diagnosis with a really rare uh, type of sarcoma. And uh, it turned out that the symptoms that led me to the hospital uh, that night had nothing to do with the the cancer or the tumor that was growing in my rib cage Um, so in in the span of a few hours or a few days I went from being a healthy 19 year old college athlete to uh, someone who was not only diagnosed with cancer but someone who felt uh, incredibly naive and unprepared and um, uh, sort of lost so uh, it was pretty overwhelming and that's what uh, that's what really set me on this this path, and since then, about six months after that, I was diagnosed with melanoma, and then a couple of months after that, another type of melanoma, uh, all between my 19th and uh, 20th birthdays. And so, you know, there was a lot of uh, ups and downs, and a lot of emotions during that year, and a lot of frustration and and anger, and um, you know, just the the whole sort of roller coaster of emotions that that you could imagine going through, and as a 19-year-old, you just don't expect to have uh, a cancer diagnosis, and you don't expect to, you know, have to start questioning your invincibility, uh, which was one of the hardest
0: parts of it. I can imagine. Even as an adult, I was diagnosed my first time when I was 38, and I still thought I was invincible at the age of 38. (laughs) You know, when you're 19, you feel like Superman, especially as a um, college athlete, nothing can bring you down. So I didn't realize I was three diagnoses, and was that less than a year?
1: Yeah, it was about ten, ten, ten months um, sure. uh, from the first to the third, uh, which is really rare and, and kind of abnormal. And um, you know, on the one hand, it was an awful year. On the other hand, it was it was uh, maybe better to get them all out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm an optimist, so I'm always looking for the the bright side. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just not what you expect to deal with. And, and, you know, also just being in college, you know, you're supposed to be having fun with your friends and being social and all this stuff. And then you're forced to rely on so many people in the medical world, people you don't really know, people that, frankly, are just a few years older than you, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, people that are telling you to do this, do that. And it's just it can be paralyzing uh, in, in many respects.
0: So this di- these diagnoses led in I assume led to pretty quickly your initial foray into cancer philanthropy so what was the first how did you what was the first step you took to get involved in that way and why
1: Yeah you know so after my first diagnosis I was really um, trying to learn as much as I could and I, I, I pretty quickly became frustrated that the medical system was set up for, pediatric patients children and adult patients and there didn't seem to be a place for young adults Um, so everything from going to the hospital going to the doctor's offices you know i was surrounded by older folks Um, because my tumor was in my ribs i was surrounded by people who had other thoracic tumors which mostly was lung cancer so people in their 60s and 70s who uh, were, were dealing with a very different situation than i was dealing with um, and I remember looking around the waiting room of the doctor's offices and even looking at the magazines and seeing, like, good housekeeping and, you know, things that just had no resonance with me. Um, and then beyond that, I called some of the other cancer organizations that, that existed at the time and, and would ask them, hey, what kind of programs or support or, you know, services do you offer for young adults? And, and they didn't really have much. In fact, some of them said, oh, well, you know, most people your age don't get cancer, so we don't sort of focus on this. And so it was a real frustrating experience and I was in my dorm room one night back in school a few months after my first diagnosis and I watched a TV show um, uh, called Primetime Live, which was on ABC at the time and they were talking about cancer and they were talking about the need for people to get involved and I called my parents and I said, hey, we should do something. And we had no idea what to do or how to do it and we just figured there's gotta be other young adults out there who are feeling isolated and lost um And we should try to make life better for them. Um, and so, again, totally naively, uh, we just set out on this path. And that's really what started um, sort of our work in the field. And what happened was remarkable. Once you started sharing the story, other people started saying, wait a minute, my sister had cancer or my brother had cancer. Or when I was 19, I was diagnosed and now I'm 40. And you just started to build this community of people who all had a similar Uh, similar yet different journey who just wanted to connect with each other and know that they weren't the only one Um, and it was powerful I mean it was as much as it was altruistic in terms of us wanting to help other people I don't think we realized our family didn't realize for a few years that it was actually helping us tremendously Um, and so there was value on both sides which was pretty cool
0: that's really neat and you said something there that's uh, kind of an ongoing theme with most people that have either had cancer or know somebody that had cancer is that the, it's the cancer survivors all over. Just they, they had no place to go, or you rarely feel like you have a place to go where you can just find other cancer survivors. The world now actually, I, I'm convinced that one of the you know people complain about social media, Facebook, you know Twitter, all this stuff, and then the evils of social media. But one of the good things it does is for people that have cancer and are looking for other people who have gone through similar experiences it gives them a way to find other people and I I've seen this yeah I've seen this firsthand myself I've locally people that get cancer now because I've been pretty public with my battles people that get cancer or have a family member with cancer they direct them to me and they say go talk to this guy because he's had cancer Um, so I think that's a really that was a pretty good insight you had as a pretty young man unfortunately you had to have it but it was pretty pretty interesting
1: well yeah, I agree with you. And by the way, back then, I mean this was nineteen ninety six ninety seven. I mean, you know, we all weren't on the internet. There was no social media. There wasn't no, you know, I mean I when I was first diagnosed, we went to a library okay. and looked at books. I mean, think about that. You imagine somebody today going to the library and going through the stacks to find books. So, I mean, it's it wasn't that long ago, but you know, it's uh, you know, the times have changed and I agree with you. I mean the, the social media has its negative and negatives and drawbacks but for the most part it allows you to connect with people that you would never otherwise be able to connect with um which can be really positive.
0: I agree. I think it's been a big help for me and for and and like you said you you guys you and your family realized that you got as much out of it as as um as the people you wanted to help were and I'm sure that's probably driven your whole career um, as you've come through with, you know, the Almond Cancer Fund and then with Livestrong and everything, it probably drives your career because you get fulfilled, um, you know, out of helping others as well, which is something that I think for a lot of people when they get cancer, for me, I, w- I was not always that way before, but after I got cancer, I became more of that kind of person. I realized that I wanted that, I got more out, of, I got as much out of helping people as I got out of actually, or they got out of me helping them.
1: Yeah, no. There's a weird, um, there's a weird relationship there where people, you know, I think people, I think human beings in general are so well intentioned and well meaning, and I think it's part of human nature to want to be a part of something bigger than yourself, and whether it's volunteering or fundraising or participating in activities, there's something wonderful about the ability to do that and give back while also benefiting yourself. And we see it, we saw it at Livestrong, we see it at Pelotonia every single day where somebody might decide to do the Pelotonia ride in Columbus in August with the best intention of honoring a loved one, a friend, a community member. um, And then once they start training and once they do it, they realize what a benefit it was to their own life. They realize that they feel healthier, they feel more engaged, they're part of a community, and and that's the stickiness. That's what keeps people coming back in many regards. Because it's like, wait a minute, I feel like I'm doing something with other people who are aligned on a, uh, you know, in, in pursuit of a mission, and we're making an impact on people's lives, and we feel good about it. And that's a uh, that's a good it's a good combination.
0: It is. So you started the almond can I believe? And it, what's it, It's the Almond Cancer Fund for young adults. Correct. Yes. So you started that and um, you graduated from Brown University and then where did you how did you end up getting involved with the uh, Lipstrong foundation was that your next stop
1: yeah so I, I was running the only cancer fund as a volunteer and then I received a grant from a foundation in New York to, to do that for another two years and during that two-year period I um, I had received an email years before from Lance Armstrong uh, when I was in college actually in 1997 and he just sort of sent me a note out of the blue and said I read about your story and I read about what you're doing and you know I think we have a lot in common Um, and again this is 1997 so email was not something you did every day you know or did it on your phone you didn't I mean I think at the time I still had a bag phone that was in my car (laughs) where my parents instructed me to never use it unless of emergency because it was exorbitantly expensive Um, but uh he and i started emailing back and forth and and when i graduated from college um he reached out and and we got together and talked about what he was doing with what was then called the lance armstrong foundation and um one thing led to another and, and in 2001 early 2001 uh i was given the opportunity to move to austin and, and help um an amazing team of people down there who Uh, really wanted to try to change the world, and and, uh, so I moved down there, I was 22 or 23 years old at the time, and um, was able to be a part of something um, really, really, really special for 14 years.
0: That's really incredible, and that's, um, you know, lives strong. so what, explain, if you would, you know, kind of what, what, what. Well, let me back up a little bit. So I know when you started Livestrong, it was probably a foundation that was geared towards, like most of them are, towards cancer research, but it pretty quickly, I assume, at least at some point it did, kind of turned over to where it was helping people as they live today. Was that? Can you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so when I arrived in Austin in 2001, the foundation was really focused on funding cancer research, as you said, mostly urologic cancers, so mostly testicular, a few others, uh, prostate as well. Um but they knew they had just started to look at survivorship, and part of that was related to Lance's own personal story, like his ability to recover and come back to his life and his career and his family. And, um, you know, His story really mirrored the, the hopes and dreams of so many people that sort of were diagnosed and said, look, I want to get back to not only having a normal life, but I want to have a great life. I want to have a high quality of life. Um, and you know, he became a symbol of that, and so we decided to really shift the focus to survivorship. We still funded research, but most of the research was focused on the long-term and late effects of treatment. What, what happens to somebody psychologically, emotionally, physically a year, two years, five years, ten years after their cancer diagnosis, and how do they get back to their life, um, whatever that life may hold? Um, and so it was an evolution, but um, we felt like Again, due to Lance's story and due to the story of so many other survivors that that's where we could have the biggest impact um, And I think that's why the Livestrong community became so um, Engaged and grew so quickly is because everyone has a story and everyone had a way to relate to this idea of living with cancer as opposed to um, uh, Something that may be a little bit more uh, amorphous
0: and from my perspective you know, Lance and Livestrong really really changed the stigma and the and the and the open discussion about cancer. And I, I think I realized before I was diagnosed with cancer, but after I was diagnosed with cancer I really realized it that probably before that you just didn't talk about it that much. I don't remember there any hearing anything about survivorship or celebrating people that survived cancer. It was more of just you got sick and you know, you just that was it. You either just got better or you didn't. But I think that was a pretty big change. So one of the ways that Livestrong probably accomplished that was through these uh, yellow bracelets. And for a long time, they were pretty ubiquitous. Everybody, everybody had them, including myself. And I still have mine. I still wear mine. But um, so the question is: Did did you? Were you the person that came up with the idea for the yellow bracelets?
1: Um, absolutely not. <laughs> oh. Um, I wish I could take credit for that. Uh-huh. Um, I was a part of an amazing team of people who um, worked on the development of a program for the foundation that ultimately ended up being called Livestrong, and it was a resource for cancer survivors. It was a website with videos, and all kinds of amazing content, mm-hmm. and and that's what we named Livestrong. Um, uh, and then I was, um, we were approached by Nike, and Nike said we want to make these yellow wristbands and we want to put the words carpe diem on the yellow wristbands because that was lance's mantra at the time and um we sort of said you know we we aren't so sure about that slogan like it's interesting but it's not that interesting maybe um and i actually personally thought the yellow wristband was a terrible idea when i first heard it i just thought (laughs) who would wear something you know every day and you know wristbands weren't everywhere back then you know this was sort of like the first major uh, uh wristband to hit the market and so i didn't think it was that great of an idea long story short nike came back to us a couple weeks later and said hey we saw this program you have called live strong what if we put live strong on the yellow wristband and um it became a little bit more interesting to us but we still weren't that interested we still weren't sure we'd be able to get rid of or sell the 5 million that they were going to give us um, And, uh, you know, we were all wrong, (laughs) clearly. Um, But again, I think it speaks to this bigger issue, which is is so many people are searching for a way to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And this gave people a way to share their own story, share the stories of their loved ones, connect with one another, and to be a part of something that was positive and aspirational um, and inspiring. And you know it, it, it worked so well and it was organic in the growth of it and uh it was one of those things that i'll, I'll just never forget the early days and how chaotic and crazy and I mean, we were so ill prepared for selling anything much less millions of anything um and uh it was pretty pretty awesome experience
0: that's pretty amazing that's pretty neat i i like what you said about those bracelets they probably all mean like you said, it's a, it fills the need for everyone to be part of a bigger community, but at the same time, it, it means a little different um, something to each person. You know, Everybody has their own story. So even today, if you see people wearing, even if it's not a Livestrong bracelet, you see bracelets all the time now that from different organizations, and it always means something to somebody. And I really, I really like that a lot. So you served as CEO of Livestrong for about 14 years, obviously led it through some challenging times. People are familiar with that. Um, but it's a great organization. So how hard was it for you to leave Livestrong and really what compelled you to do so?
1: You know, it was really hard. I mean, it, it was such a, I mean, just an incredible experience over 14 years and, and, um, the people that we got to work with were just phenomenal. Um, frankly, the opportunity that Lance provided, uh, to us and to the world, um, I think was remarkable. I mean, we would not have had the opportunity to create programs and serve so many people and uh, and so that was just a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity um, and yet it, the organization had been through so much and I felt was about to start another phase and in my mind, that next phase needed somebody new to come sort of lead it through um, the, the next phase and evolution of the organization. So, um, it was a very tough decision because it it just meant so much. It means so much to me today. Um, and yet the opportunity to come to Columbus and work with Pelotonia was, um, was astonishing to be honest. I mean, I'd never seen an organization like Pelotonia that had grown so quickly in such a short period of time, um, that was grassroots, community driven, collaborative, um, and who had big aspirations of wanting to continue to grow and grow and grow and have a huge impact. And so the more I learned about it and the more I learned about the community in the city of Columbus and the way that people at the James and in the corporate community and in the in the broader community were engaging, um, it was just a really interesting opportunity to take something that had had tons of success but was still relatively small and try to grow it into something that could really save and change lots of lives
0: well let's talk about that a little bit so what exactly is pelotonia in, in broad and basic terms
1: so it's an organization that is, is celebrating its 10-year anniversary this year um, it started as a bike ride to raise money for cancer research and it has become something bigger it's become a grassroots community of literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people who um, volunteer raise money uh, advocate um, and really care about advancing research, not just basic science, but all types of research that will have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a huge impact on people's lives, not just in Columbus or Ohio or the Midwest or the U.S., but a- around the world. Um, so it's really evolving into something um, where people can eventually later this year will be able to participate year round from wherever they live um, through some new technology platforms and uh, becoming a, a, an inspiring, aspirational brand.
0: That's really great. So, and I think maybe you mentioned this already, but so I think, and explain if this is wrong, but 100% of your donations are used for grants and research at the James Cancer Center at Ohio State. And how, how do you manage to use 100% of donations for that?
1: Yeah, we're very fortunate. So we have um, an amazing model where, All of our expenses, all of our overhead is covered by several organizations, some very large companies and uh, a handful of uh, private families who realize that when we can go out in the community and say 100% of every single dollar that you uh, contribute is going directly to transformational research, they realize how powerful that message is and what a great commitment that is for us to make to the community. And so they invest significant dollars to cover all of the expenses of the organization and we don't do we never take that for granted and we are deeply appreciative of their um, generosity uh, and it allows us to spend a few million dollars a year uh, in order to raise uh, last year 26.2 million this year hopefully over 30 million um, and just growing and growing and growing and again it would not be possible without our funding partners who saw the vision early on and who um, understood it, that it would take a big commitment to, to make it uh, a reality and they stepped up in a big way.
0: So one of the interesting things um, for me, you know with cancer and ca- different cancer organizations is um, you know people always say we need to find a cure for cancer and and I guess from my perspective, there's really maybe maybe someday there will be, but it doesn't there's not always just one cure for cancer. there's Kind of a sliding scale where you get closer on each different type of cancer you move closer to the end of the spectrum of curing cancer and that can be done through screenings or treatments or anything like that but i think when we were in for pelotonia last year you and i spoke and i believe you told me about a program that pelotonia funded that was aimed at reducing the um reducing colon cancer deaths And I think it was uh, something to do with genetic testing for everybody in the state that was um, diagnosed with colon cancer, is that right? And if so, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so the the Lynch gene, which is um, a gene that is correlated with certain types of colon cancer, that gene was discovered at Ohio State years ago. And so what we realized was that many people who were diagnosed with colon cancer in, in Ohio and beyond were never tested for that gene. And the reality is, is, is if they were tested and we understood whether they did or did not have that gene, we would potentially alter the treatment that they would receive based on that. So there are certain treatments that work if you have Lynch syndrome, and there are certain treatments that wouldn't be as effective uh, uh, if you had that gene. So um, we created a program called um, the Ohio Colon Cancer Prevention Initiative, which basically took samples of every colon cancer diagnosis in the state of Ohio. And tested them and if the person tested positive for the gene then we could make a recommendation to their clinical team about what treatment would work we could also then help with genetic testing for their family because if they carried the gene then there was a 50 percent chance that their that their offspring would carry the gene um so we have genetic counselors go out in the community and meet with them and this program was a few million dollars of pelotonia uh fundraised uh for it but the reality is it saved the state up to $40 and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of life of people who not only would never have known they had the Lynch gene, but also if their kids were found to have it, those kids will start getting colonoscopies way earlier than the regular recommendation, and they will never get colon cancer because everything will be found early. And so, um, you know, you can can imagine a 15-year-old child who knows they have the Lynch gene that starts getting colonoscopies at 22 or 25 and never, ever has to endure a colon cancer diagnosis. So um, that's a research project, but it has direct clinical application in people's lives today. And so um, a lot of our research is in the lab, but a lot of our research is translational in nature as well.
0: That's really interesting, and that one hits pretty close to home for to me because I was i had my initial cancer diagnosis was colon cancer, and then in two thousand sixteen I got diagnosed with a lymphoma, which you had helped me find some treatment for um, or consultation for and then after that I did genetic testing and found that I have the genetic mutation, the Lynch syndrome, and so we already have gotten testing scheduled for our three year old son to see if he has the same um You know genetic mutation and if he'd have to start screening earlier so that that directly can save lives and i think that's one thing that's so neat about um, pelotonia and these organizations that people can almost in real time see lives being saved um, versus just you know when you send money off somewhere and you just hope it works out somewhere somewhere else Um, so what's the best way for someone to get involved with pelotonia now i know if they're in the ohio area if they can travel to ohio in August um it's 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 a super fun event i've done it myself i just about died last year from exhaustion but uh it's an amazing event i think i see on the board behind you it says your goal is always to deliver a kick-ass experience and uh i will say that it was a kick-ass experience so but but it's a long drive from mississippi to ohio which a bunch of us are going to make this year but if someone wants to get involved that's not from ohio what can they do
1: well, we can't wait to have you back. If you train a little bit, it won't be as kick-ass as this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, um, we are a, a few months away from launching a new technology platform, a new app that will allow anyone in the country and eventually in the world who is exercising, they will be able to raise money just through the process of that exercise and that could be running it could be walking it could be riding a bike indoor outdoor treadmill walking doesn't matter um, and that is called pull p-u-l-l-l uh, it's got an extra l on it because that's our way of showing the world that we always want one more person we always want one more donation one more volunteer one more research project and if you go to pull.org p-u-l-l-l.org you can sign up to be notified when the app launches but we're really excited because we want to take The community that that has been built around the ride in Columbus and open it up to people all over the country and the world who care about this cause, who want to be a part of the organization and and want to help uh, uh, reduce the suffering and death that that cancer causes too frequently. So um, yeah, we'd love to have everybody come ride and volunteer or donate or buy merchandise on our website at pelotonia.org, but we also know that uh, for many people, they won't be able to be here. Um, and uh, and if that's the case, then uh, we're going to try to deliver them some experiences via technology where they can be a part of this community.
0: That's really great. i have been looking forward to it this year. I promise I'll train a little bit since you now have a, <laughs> I have to ride 200 miles in two days. That's I don't think I did 180 last year. I'm pretty sure I could not have made it 20 more miles. So this this oh, year I'll, I'm
1: sure you could have. I'll try You train. sat on Nelson's wheel. You're fine.
0: Uh, <laughs> Nelson, yeah, we'll talk about Nelson in a little bit, but no, he's a he's a world class mountaineer. He's got more lung capacity than I
1: do. <laughs> That's true. That's true.
0: So uh, let's let's go one more thing. So you've uh, I was doing some research about you online. Now we're friends and I know you, but I was trying to just see what other people thought of Doug Alman, and so. And this I agree. with. So you've been called, quote, the most savvy healthcare leader in social media. So, and you know, I, I've teased you before about how you have over a million followers on Twitter, and I've got about 193. But um, how have you been able to use social? <laughs> I moved up. I've increased. <laughs> so how have you no, been? I think, able...
1: Look, I, I think social media, is as we were talking earlier, I mean, it's a it's a great tool to communicate, right? So it's a it's a way to. Um, it's a way to communicate with people who have selected to, they sort of opted in. They've said, I want to be a part of what we're talking about. I want to be a part of this community. And, you know, I think the key is just being transparent and open and, and, and sharing experiences and also um, answering questions and, and, and supporting, um, you know, uh, uh, people where they are. I mean, so many people who are diagnosed look for a community of support and, Um, you know, I think we're able to provide that through some of these social tools.
0: That's really great. So let's talk a little bit. Some of the people that like to listen to this show are are athletes, adventurers, things like that. And I know you've done um, some pretty interesting things over the years, including um, uh, something we'll talk about what you and I did in a minute. Oh, conquering Kilimanjaro. So anyway, sorry, Doug got a Doug was talking to someone on his end and it distracted me. So let's talk a little bit. Anyway, a lot of people that listen to the program are athletes or adventurers, and they like things like that. And you have you played um, college sports. You were a soccer player in college, and then you've done some adventures after that. And I, I think you um, did a long run in the Himalayas, and then we uh, ended up in Africa together for a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about your adventurer career and and kind of. Uh, talk about that a little bit
1: well I think I mean you know I mean first of all the experience we had in Kilimanjaro was just remarkable and and special in so many ways and I I think the more I I reflect on experiences like that or the Himalayas um, you know I, I feel like there's something so positive about being uncomfortable and putting yourself in positions where you've got to either learn a new skill or you've got to try to achieve something that you didn't think was possible or just pushing ourselves beyond what we might do on a daily basis. And I think as a former athlete and somebody who's really motivated by um, goals and, and setting sort of audacious goals, um, I think those experiences are like really critical and they, they give you time to think and they give you time to stretch your your sort of physical or, or emotional um, uh, being and um, every couple of years I just feel like it's healthy to pick something challenging and, and try to do it
0: so a little background here for anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about um, in 2014 along with two other cancer survivors and 12 cancer warriors Doug and I and my wife were on the same expedition team that summited Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa and this climb was a fundraising expedition that benefited um, LiveStrong at the time and the trip was subsequently featured in a 2015 emmy nominated documentary by one of the climbers mark middleton um, called conquering kilimanjaro there were some really amazing people on that team and the the impact of that expedition at least for myself and my wife and the other climbers was really life changing i really uh it really changed the course of my life in many ways, um, which is good because cancer changed it first. And then, uh, you know, cancer brought me to being on this trip with all these amazing people, but, um, you had kind of touched a little bit on why you decided to climb Killy, but I have a question for you. So you're a man of great resources and you know, people all around the world. So when you showed up to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, why were you so unprepared?
1: It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> I, um, Honestly, I think that I was so busy, and I know that sounds really terrible, but I think I was so busy in the year leading up to that trip, given what we were going through at at the foundation, that I literally didn't, one, I didn't take the time to think about how hard it was going to be. Two, I didn't take the time to think about how to prepare adequately, whether that was physically or um, through uh, the acquisition of... Uh, gear and, uh, and the right, uh, tools. Um, and so, you know, much like you showed up to ride 180 miles without training, you know, I showed up without the uh, necessary gear.
0: Yeah, Uh, but luckily,
1: luckily there were people like, uh, you and your beautiful wife who had gone out and been so creative and, uh, and acquired matching, uh, incredible, uh, items that there was enough to go around.
0: So that's probably why you wear that Buffalo Peak hat, because indirectly, <laughs> Buffalo Peak pretty much outfitted your expedition.
1: Uh, it's the least I can do. I mean, they kept me warm on a mountain. They didn't even know who I was
0: at the time. <laughs> so, uh, so to get serious for a couple, there were a couple scenes in the documentary, and if anyone wants to watch the documentary, I believe it's still available on conquering It's a really poignant documentary, um, with a lot of interesting people and then me, but, uh. There's a number of scenes in documentary where you get pretty emotional, and I think the reason I find that important is because you're such a big face, um, you know, when it comes to the cancer fighting community, you've been through it all, you've been a cancer survivor, you've seen other people who have battled, um, but in the, in the movie, you talk about your parents and how they impacted your life, um, which was really nice, and then after the climb, you know, you had received word that a longtime friend, a young man named Jimmy Folks, had passed away while we were on the mountain and you know you read us an email from his father which really still affects my wife and i to this day we talked about it last night before when i was prepping for this for this episode and we both almost tear up a little bit but we talked a little earlier about how cancer is kind of a unique and uh, you know sometimes unfortunate bond that survivors have with one another and there seems to be a little force in the universe somewhere that kind of drives survivors to one another for various reasons and then survivors kind of connect in a way that they wouldn't if they had not if they had met in another manner. So um, for you, I, I imagine, I could be wrong, but I imagine one of the unseen difficult parts of what you do, you know, everyone sees that you get to help people and do a lot of amazing things. But I imagine one of the difficult things is that um, for you, along with those you work with, um, a lot of the people you meet have been affected by cancer. They've either lost someone to cancer or they've had cancer themselves. And a lot of the people you know even run out of time so what keeps you going in this regard and how hard is it for you to and others in the same fields you know to to manage that that kind of problem
1: yeah i mean i think it's it's really challenging i mean you know i've been a i've been lucky enough to be a part of organizations that were very um positive and and tried to inspire collective action and bring out the best in people so that's the beauty of this work. Um, but the reality is, is that this disease is is brutal. And, you know, the fact that we're both here talking on this podcast today, and Jimmy Folks is not with us, um, is not fair. It's not fair. I mean, he was an incredible young man, student at Stanford, amazing family, access to the best medical care. He had everything. And yet he... Uh, didn't survive, and so um, you know. On the one hand, it's it's an awful um, and and incredibly sad uh, situation because so many people go through what Jimmy and his family have gone through, um, and yet on the other hand, you see everyday s- stories of people who overcome the odds and and through miraculous new therapies survive, and and there's more of those stories every day. But but it doesn't take away from, um, just the, the, the burden of losing friends and family and and community members. I mean, look, Jimmy's four year anniversary of his passing was, was, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, I'll never forget getting that email. Never forget walking down the mountain when all those emails started coming in and seeing that note from his dad. And, um, you know, as a parent and you're you have a young ch- child. I mean, I, I just can't even imagine. I can't imagine um, what that would be like. And so, on the one hand, you know, it's it's great to be able to focus our attention and energy on helping so many people. But on the other hand, there are too many stories like Jimmy's where um, you just sort of sit around and wonder, and you go, "How could that happen? How could how could that be the outcome?" Um, so. You know i do something really crazy in my phone uh which is bizarre to many people but um i flip through my contacts on a regular basis and the reason i do that is i just scroll and i've got lots of people in my phone but i scroll through because it's a constant reminder of people who are no longer here and when i see their name and i see their contact it it forces me to think about them and to remember them and um it's sort of a bizarre thing that I just started doing one day years ago, and um, I just never want to forget them because they're, rightfully so, they're the inspiration for why we keep doing this. And so whether it's riding in Pelotonia or running a marathon or doing something, you know, I, I will think about people like Jimmy and so many others because we owe it to them to, um, to make sure that fewer and fewer people um, have, have that same outcome in the future.
0: Wow, that's uh that's pretty amazing and pretty powerful and I uh, I think you know just I, I think it's so good as a cancer survivor and a parent to know that there's people like you out there who have dedicated their lives, you know, to to battling and to trying to solve that problem so that other people won't have to go through that in the future. And I think that's uh pretty amazing and I'm thankful for people like you that do that and I know it's tough and I think that sometimes, you know, People in the forefront like you, it always looks like you get to do all the fun stuff, but you have to put in a lot of work, and you have to do a lot of not fun stuff too. So thank you for all you do. You know, as a as a You're friend welcome. and a parent. Thank that's, you. That's, that's important. Thank you. It takes so, all of us, man. It does. I agree. Well, on that note, I think we'll probably sign off. I know you've got a lot to do. You've had staff coming <laughs> and going, and there. Get off the phone. <laughs> no. i just kidding. Just played
1: mu- musical conference rooms. That's all. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: all right. So. Um again uh if people want to get involved they can go to pullll.org if they're not local, if they're not um if they're not in Ohio or can't participate in the actual bike ride. Is that right? pullll.org? It is
1: it is and if you you know if you want to learn more about Pelotonia and the ride and the organization, go to pelotonia.org. One of the things that you can do there is you can click on the tab that says riders and you can search through the profiles of riders. And I love to do this. You go in and you can, you can type in Survivor and you can read the stories of so many survivors who are uh, riding and why they're riding and who they're riding in honor of or in memory of. And um, One of the things I love to do is go in and just read the stories and every so often make a you know, $5, or $10 donation to somebody that I don't know um, because their story was so inspiring. Um, so that's one way people can participate from afar as well.
0: That's really great. Well, I'm looking forward to being there. I'll try to round up as many people as I can. I'll probably train, although even if I train, you'll probably still drop me. So <sighs> eh, maybe I won't train. I don't know. But um, anyway, a lot I really
1: things, there are a lot of things I worry about at night. One of them is not whether you're going to finish the bike ride because I know how strong you are. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <so.
0: laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. I think you're wrong, but I appreciate it. I, but uh, good. Well, Doug, thank you for the time. I know you got a ton of things going on. I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you in August. And uh, um, that's it. You got anything to say before we sign off?
1: No, I just appreciate all that you're doing to make a difference in so many people's lives. and uh, It was amazing being on Kilimanjaro with you, but the more amazing thing is continuing uh, our friendship, and uh, I know that we'll find ways to uh, collaborate on many things in the future, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on. It
0: okay, sounds great. All right, thanks, Doug. Got to run.